to do it. And one of the things that um, nobody's ever accused me of not being thorough when we go through something. I tend to be a little too thorough at times, but I want to make sure we have an understanding because there is so much, as I've said before, bad information when it comes to the concept of spiritual warfare, of how we do it, what we do, and things like that. But let's open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. You've already heard this verse once today, but now you're going to hear it again. You've heard it every week. You probably can recite it, but we're going to start at verse 1. We've got it up on the screen if you don't happen to have a Bible with you. But 2 Corinthians chapter 10, starting in verse 1, says, Now I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am lowly among you, but being absent and bold towards you. But I beg you that when I am present, I may not be bold with the confidence by which I intend to be bold against some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ, and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Over the last several weeks, we've, we've begun to start, we wanted to start at the beginning. We've got to have a foundation upon which we build anything upon it. It always has to come from Scripture. And so we had, I said for any Christian, any believer, anybody who's the calls himself a Christ follower, we have to be able to answer four fundamental questions. The first one is, who is God? Who is God? According to Scripture, not according to what's out there in the world, not according to what people say, not even your own opinions, but what does the Bible say about the one who spoke the Bible into existence? Number two, who am I in relationship to God? Understanding that my place that God has put me in and who we are according to Him. The third one is, how do I worship Him? The problem with today is when we hear the word worship, our minds immediately go to music. And that is not how God intended worship to be. Worship is not just something we do. It is part of who we are. Our whole lives should be bowed down in adoration to Christ with everything we have. I mean everything. Everywhere we go, we should be worshiping God. And that doesn't mean we sing songs when we're standing in line at McDonald's. And the fourth one, and this is where we're going from here, is who is my enemy? We we have to have an understanding of who he is. So I've got a picture to show you. I showed it last week. But when we think of spiritual warfare, this is what we think of. We've got Jesus versus Satan, right? The proverbial good versus evil. This is where we are. This is what we do. This is how it goes. And this is not really what spiritual warfare is at all because it's not Jesus versus Satan. Jesus already defeated him. And that's what we talked about last week was is just starting at the beginning is, is what is even Satan's name? Is it Lucifer? Is it the devil? Is it Satan? All of these different things. And so by examining Scripture, we realize that Lucifer and Satan really aren't a name, so to speak, but more of a description of who he, who he is. As, as a matter of fact, all throughout Scripture, you never see a proper name. Now, we call, use it a proper name, but we don't see it as that when you study it out because all it's giving us descriptions of who he is. And the truth is, Call him whatever you want. It doesn't matter what we looked at. What did Jesus call him? He called him defeated. And that's what looked at the handwriting of requirements and what that entails. When it, Paul talked about that and how Jesus took the handwriting of requirements against us and nailed them to the cross. Basically, Jesus taking our place and giving us the power and authority over Satan because he defeated him. He's beaten him. He is a defeated foe. The only thing he can do is rise up in your life when you let him. Problem is, we're good at letting him. We don't take the authority of much of what you heard tonight or this morning. We don't take the authority that God has given us. We just kind of go through life and we accept things because that's just what we see every day. We accept sickness because, well, there's a flu going around. We accept things like, and we don't have to, we choose to. 
And so too often, we give the devil credit for things when really we should be blaming ourselves. And that's what I said, and I've not gotten into this part, and we will as we continue to go through, but, but ultimately our biggest problem in life has nothing to do with Satan, the devil, Lucifer, whatever you want to call him. It is our flesh, our uncrucified flesh and our unrenewed mind. And that's the problem because without the renewing of the mind, we cannot know what God wants. It's not renewed to the things of the world. It's already there. It's renewed to the Word of God. That is where we renew. So, that is what we talked about last week. For those of you that maybe weren't here, give you a quick update. It is on the website. If you did not happen to catch it, you can listen to it. But today, we're going to talk about what does Satan look like. We see in that picture, is that still up? Can you throw that back up there? We kind of assume he looks something like that or, or, or whatnot. But what does the Bible say about that? You know, and, and so turn over to Ezekiel 28. And we were there this morning in Bible study in case you weren't. I'm just sitting there the whole time Jan is teaching. I'm like, you're stealing my thunder here. Come on now. That's all right. It's not my thunder anyway. Ezekiel 28. We're going to start in verse 11. So just so you know that when you look at Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, what we see here is first God talking to man, then God talking to the power behind that man. And we see that in both passages. And so they're easy to remember because Isaiah comes before Ezekiel 14. 28, that way if you're ever wondering where it is, easy, easy things to remember. We're going to start in Ezekiel 28 and verse 11. It says, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God. Now the king of Tyre is referring to Satan. We saw prior to this that he was the prince of Tyre that he was talking to. And say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You were the seal of per perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. You were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones, and you were perfect in your ways from the day you were created until iniquity was found in you. This is basically a passage, and it goes on from there, but this is all we're going to focus on today because we're just trying to answer really simply one question. And so starting back at the beginning of this passage, it talks about how he was the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect beauty. What does that mean? It means he's not ugly. Right? doesn't say you're some hideous creature. No, that's man-made, fanciful stuff. But the problem is, is what happens when we think of Satan? We think of something similar to that. Right? We, he talks about every precious stone was your covering. Now, there's debates among theologians. Were these literal stones on them or were these colored light? The truth is, I don't care. It's what is this symbolizing, and as you talked about this morning, it is an authority, the priestly authority that you see. Now, it only gives seven of the stones here. There was actually twelve. Is there something in that? I'm not really sure, to be honest with you. But it's talking about his covering and where he was. And then you get down a little bit further, and it's talking about the workmanship of your timbrels and pipes. And this is where we get the concept that Satan was the worship leader in heaven. The truth is, is that that's pretty vague to make such a statement like that. But the bottom line is, we definitely know that he was, he was created perfect. He had an authority. So it wouldn't doubt, I wouldn't doubt it for a minute because you see angels are ministering spirits unto man and worshiping God all the time. And so is it beyond possibility? Of course not. It very much could be. But then we come to verse 14. And this is where it gives us the biggest description of what Satan could very well look like. It says, you were the anointed cherub who covers. Now, when we see the word anointed, the word anointed implies authority. 
Because what happens, it, it, the setting apart, so to speak, you see it all throughout the Old Testament that when, when a king was anointed, what is happening? I am now setting you apart for my work. Believers are anointed, right? What happens? We are now set apart. That's just the same thing. We see it. But cherub, cherub is the key word there is that what is a cherub? And we talked about this briefly this morning, but let's look at that. And so I'm going to give you a quick rundown of, of what some angelic descriptions are, okay? Now, this is not going to be all-encompassing, and you're not going to learn everything you need to know when it comes to angels and things like that, but I just want to give you a quick rundown so you have an understanding and basically, basically something to understand this from when we look at the word cherub. So first of all, the word angel comes from a, a Hebrew word, melach, if I'm saying that right, meaning one who's dispatched with the message. It was used 196 times, 111 times specifically uses the word angels. And then we see 98 times as messengers and four as ambassadors and things like that. And then you see aglos, which is the Greek uh, word going back to the Hebrew. You see it in the Septuagint, meaning a messenger envoy, one who is sent a messenger from God. And this is used 179 times specifically as angels and seven times as messengers. So we see the description of angels, but what is the ministry of an angel? What they, they do? So I'm just going to go through these very quickly. Um, I don't expect you to write all these down. You can't. I'll, I'll try to go slow. You guys know I'm not good at that, but I will try. It's, they continually serve those who will inherit salvation. It's from a Hebrews, uh, Hebrews 1 and 14. We see that, that they're ministering spirits, serving those who will inherit salvation and they reveal unknown truth we see that in the book of daniel in chapter 10 we see it in acts 27 they're revealing truth they give personal guidance matthew 1 luke 2 we see that they're giving guidance to people they're protecting from harm what do we see daniel 6 delivering from enemies acts 5 and, and, and acts 12 as well we see angels that are encouraging people or strengthening them or whatever. You see it with Jacob in Genesis 32, Daniel in, uh, in Daniel 8 and 10 and 16 through 19. With the Apostle Paul, you see it in Acts 27. And they provided food for Elijah in 1 Kings 19. I mean, you see these different things. So what do they do? They guide us. They encourage us. They deliver us. They enlighten us. They empower us. And they protect us. So when we say they guide us, if you, and I just write these references down, that's all I want you to do. You can go back and study this for yourself. Angels guide us, Genesis 19, verses 15 through 17. We see them bringing guidance. You see them bringing encouragement. You see it in Judges 6, 12. Deliverance in Acts 12 and verse 7. They bring enlightenment in Matthew 2, 19 and 20. They bring empowerment from Luke 22 and verse 43, and the protection, you'll see that in Psalm 91, 11 through 12. And this is where we get the concept of guardian angels. Now, I actually had always thought for years, had always thought that this was just some sort of myth, that there aren't guardian angels, so to speak. But Psalms 91 says this, For he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. In their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. That's fascinating to me because we, we've all had things happen in our lives that are like, man, I guess my guardian angels were looking out for me. And I, again, I always just kind of thought that was just something we said until you really begin to dig into it. And that's just one verse. There are others. But talk about this. If they're, what are they there to do? They're ministering spirits. We see that in Hebrews 1. That means they minister unto us. They bring their helpers and things like that. 
Then you, and there are different classes of angels. We get, and I'm going to call them super angels. You call them whatever you want. But they're specifically named in their description and what they do. So you see, I have the cherubs. What we talked about, the plural of that is cherubim. Whenever you have Hebrew, you add an I am ending, and that makes it plural. But what do we see? They have four wings, and we'll see them in a minute in Genesis 3, but they're guarding the tree of life. And they also adorn the mercy seat in Exodus with the, with the um, Ark of the Covenant. You have seraphim, which you see in different places, that had six wings. There's a difference in description. You see it from the vision of the throne of God that Isaiah had in Isaiah 6. And then you have the uh, Hebrew, or excuse me, Greek word zoon, which is also referring to angels. It, it's referring to living creatures. And you see that in Revelations 4 and 5. Um, the vision of the throne of God that he had, he sees these things flying around and they're singing worship to God. But cherubim is what we're really going to focus on because this is what we talk about when we say he's the anointed cherub. So because God called him that, that gives us an idea of what he can There are these composite fix figures and they're exalted in proximate message to the dwelling of God and they function in several ways. So as I just said, Genesis 3, we see them guarding the ark and that they guard the ark in Solomon's temple in 1 Kings 6. They engage in adoration of God in connection with the mercy seat in the tabernacle, which is all through Exodus. They support the Lord's throne and that's 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, Kings. I mean, you can see it everywhere, 2 Kings. And then they, they form the charity of God, a chariot, excuse me, of God in 2 Samuel 22 and others. And so when we look at this, we say, all right, Lucifer, what do you look like? Satan, what do you look like? Getting a description of him. We look at Ezekiel chapter 1 is where we start. This gives us a very uh, in-depth description of what a cherubim or cherub would look like. Starting in verse 1. And we're going to read a good part of this. Now it came to pass in the 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the captives of the river Shebar, that the heavens were opened up and I saw visions of God. Now look at how descriptive the 30th year, fourth month, fifth day of the month. Those are not there arbitrarily. Everything that the Holy Spirit put into Scripture is there with a purpose. And I would encourage you to go back and look to see what those are. Verse 2, on the fifth day of the month, which was the fifth year of King that guy, captivity, the word of the Lord came expressly to Ezekiel, the priest of the son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans by the river Shebar, and the hand of the Lord was upon him there. Then I looked, and behold, a whirlwind was coming out of the north, a great cloud with raging fire engulfing itself, and brightness was all around it, and radiating out of the midst like the color of amber out of the midst of the fire. Also, uh, from within it came the likeness of four living creatures, and this was their appearance. They had likeness of a man. Each one had four faces, and each one had four wings. Their legs were straight, and the soles of their feet were like the soles of calves' feet. They sparkled like the color of burnished bronze. The hands of a man were under their wings on their four sides, and each of their, uh, the four had faces and wings. The wings touched one another. The creature did not turn when they went, but each one went straight forward. As for the likeness of the face, each one had the face of a man. Each of the four had the face of a lion on the right side. Each of the four had the face of an ox on the left side, and each of the four had the face of an eagle." 
Thus were their faces, their wings stretched upward, two wings of each one touched one another, and two covered their bodies, and each one went straight forward. They went wherever the Spirit wanted to go, and they did not turn when they went. As for the likeness of the living creature, their appearance was like burning coals of fire, like the appearance of torches going back and forth among the living creatures. The fire was bright, and out of the fire went lightning, and the living creatures ran back and forth in appearance like a flash of lightning. Now as I looked at the living creatures, behold, a wheel was on the earth beside each living creature with its four faces. Now we're going to jump down to verse 22. In between here is talking about these wheels, and this is where we get the idea of the chariot of God. This is their, their, They're making this up here. In verse 22, it says, The likeness of the firmament above the heads of the living creatures was like the color of an awesome crystal stretched out over their heads. And under the firmament, their wings spread out straight, one toward another. Each one had two, which covered one side, and each one had two, which covered the other side of the body. Which they went, When they went, I heard the noise of, the wing, of their wings, like the noise of many waters, like the voice of the Almighty, a tumult, like the noise of an army. And when they stood still, they let their wings down. A voice came from above the firmament that was over their heads. Whenever they stood, they let their wings down. Here is a very good description of what a cherub would look like. Now, how we get from what we, we think a cherub looks like to this, I have no idea because it's, I mean, it's very descriptive. And these are strange looking creatures, right? I mean, this is not your run-of-the-mill, okay, this is what I think of an angel, right? I mean, this is, this is so out there a little bit. But we see this again in Ezekiel 10. So we're going to read that as well. Because I want you guys to know where this stuff comes from and have an understanding of what it's talking about. In Ezekiel 10, in verse 1, we're reading a lot today. It says, And I looked, and there in the firmament that was above the head of the cherubim, there appeared something like a sapphire stone, having the appearance of the likeness of a throne. Then he spoke to the man clothed with linen and said, Go in among the wheels under the cherub, fill your hands with coals of fire from among the cherubim, and scatter them over the city. And, and he went in as I watched. Verse 3, Now the cherubim were standing on the south side of the temple when the man went in, and the cloud filled with the inner court. Then the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub and paused over the threshold of the temple. And the house was filled with the cloud, and the, and the court was full of the brightness of the Lord's glory. And the sound of the wings of the cherubim was heard even in the outer court, like the voice of Almighty God when He speaks. Then it happened, he commanded the man clothed in linen, saying, Take fire from among the wheels, from among the cherubim. And he went in the south or excuse me, he went in and stood beside the wheels and the cherub stretched out his hands from among the cherubim to the fire that was among the cherubim and took some of it and put it in the hands of the man clothed with linen and took it and went out. The cherubim appeared to have the form of a man's hand under their wings. And when I looked, there were four wheels by the cherubim, one wheel by one cherub and another wheel by each other cherub. The wheels appeared to have the color of a barrel stone. As for their appearance, all four looked alike. As it were, a wheel in the middle of a wheel. When they went, they went toward any of the four directions. They did not turn aside when they went, but followed in the direction the head was facing. They did not turn aside when they went, and their whole body, with their back, their hands, their wings, and their wheels that had four or that the four had were full of eyes all around. As for the wheels, they were called in my hearing wheel. Each one had four faces. The first face was the face of a cherub. The second face was the face of a man. The third, the face of a lion. The fourth, the face of an eagle. And the cherubim were lifted up 
this was the living creature I saw by the river Shebar. He is referencing back to this vision that he had. When the cherubim went, the wheels went beside them. And when the cherubim lifted their wings to mount up from the earth, the same wheels also did not turn from beside them. When the cherubim stood still, the wheels stood still. And when the one was lifted up, the other lifted itself up. For the spirit of the living creature was in them. Then the glory of the Lord departed from the threshold of the temple and stood over the cherubim. And the cherubim lifted their wings and mounted up from the earth in my sight. When they went out, the wheels were beside them, and they stood at the door of the east gate of the Lord's house, and the glory of God of Israel was above them. This is the living creature I saw under the God of Israel by the river Shebar, and I knew they were cherubim. Each one had four faces, and each one had four wings. And the likeness of the hands of a man was under their wings, and the likeness of their faces was the same as the faces which I had seen by the river Shebar. Their appearances and their persons, they went straight forward. That was a lot. Catch my breath a little bit. But what do we see here? A very detailed description of what he's seeing. And, and he goes in, and it, they're odd creatures. It talks about when they, they, they don't turn, they just go. If they're going to the left, to the right, forward, back, whatever, they just go. They don't turn their bodies. Now that could have something to do with the foreheads. It talks about the hands of a man. It talks about the feet of a calf. I mean, it's got these four wings. And it talks about when they land, that two of the wings cover their legs. Now, some theologians will say that they're actually covering their genitalia. I don't know that to be fact because it says that it covers their feet. I don't know because you think about what, what does God say all over the place, especially in the Old Testament, when you come on holy ground, that feet, you remove your shoes and things like that. So there could be something there. The bottom line is, is the idea and concepts that we have of what angels look like is completely off base. Many of us have this idea based like this. I've got a picture here. This is what we think of when we think cherub. You Google cherub, this is what comes up. These cute little baby angels that fly around. Maybe that's what Cupid was. He's a cherub and he shot arrows and things like that. This is what we think of. But realistically, it's probably more a lot like this other image here. Something like that. Now, these are obviously artist renditions. Okay, Nobody got to snap a picture of one or anything like that. But how we get from this great and mighty creature to this. Now, I want you to think about it. What would be significant in having something like that? It lowers the standard and power of God. When we think of angels, we think of children. What are angels sent to do? They're, they're sent to empower us and do these things. How much empowerment can you receive for something like that versus this great and mighty creature that can stand up? But when we look at that and we compare it to the description of Satan, in fact, I think I've got something to just maybe some different images of Satan that we have that when they pop in our head here, there's a few. This giant winged creature there, the horns, that's from a movie, I believe, and then some guy with a pitchfork, and I just thought that one was funny, so I threw it up there. But, but and here's an ironic, and this, this has nothing to do with anything political, but when I typed into Google Images, what does Satan look like according to the Bible? The first four pages were nothing but pictures of Obama. I'm not even kidding. Now, I'm not saying anything, but if Google's saying it, it must be true, right? No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But again, <laughs> French model, bonjour. Yeah, thank God for State Farm. But, I mean, not State Farm. They're a horrible company, right, Jim? You don't want State Farm. But, but what do we, we think about this, and what happens is we allow these different pictures and things to tell us exactly what they look like. Where do we get these ideas? Most of the description of fallen angels, demons, Satan himself, 
comes from the book Dante's Inferno, which was written a long time ago. And it's just progressed from there. We've got these movies and things like that. But that's not what God said. That's not what the Word says. It gives us a description of what He looks like. Does He look identical to these odd creatures that we just described? I really don't know. But if I had to go to the Word and say, what does Satan look like, and that God called him a cherub, then this is where I'm going to lean. And I'm not seeing anything specifically in the Word that makes it look any different or anything like that. We have in our mind an image of what angels look like and what demons look like. Now, can you go back to that other picture, Amy? Angels and demons. I want you to think about that. Now, what did we see in our mind when we think of demons? We think of all those big creatures here. Now, what do we think of angels? Tiny little useless creatures that can't do anything. This is not how God, this is man-made. What have they done? They've weakened God and elevated our enemy. And I'm going to tell you a quick story. And this is a little on the weird kind of list, okay? When I was a young, young child, I don't know how old I was, um, I had a dream one night, okay? Now, many of us have, um, obviously we dream dreams, see vision, they can, we can have dreams that are directly from God, but we can also have dreams that are not from God, okay? And so I'm going to paint this picture as best I can. But I grew up believing that Satan, de the demons, whatever you want to call them, was some dude running around in his underwear with a long pointed tail, horns, had that weird goatee, and I'm not sure who came up with that, and the pitchfork. As a matter of fact, I had seen a poster of that in a children's church, and it wouldn't have been ours because Susan taught me, and she was smarter than that, but probably at a, a VBS or something. I mean, you know, whatever. But this is the image that I had of Satan. And so in this house that we lived in when I was growing up, it was a two-story house, and we had these stairs where you kind of had to go up a couple, then you had to turn to go up a bunch, and then you go up a few more. And right at the top of the stairs was my bedroom. And if you turn left, you go down a very small hallway, you could get to the attic, and if you turn right, that's where the rest of the bedrooms were. And in my dream, I was dreaming that my brother and I, who was two years younger than me, was chasing me up the stairs. Now, I know this was a dream because my brother didn't chase anything. So I know that that was not in real life. But as I'm running up these stairs, no, I'm chasing him. I'm sorry, I said that wrong. I'm chasing him. We go up the stairs, and he would go to the right. And so as I turned to the right, all of a sudden, something grabbed my foot, drug me underneath my bed, and it was this image of Satan that we just saw the horns and all of that. And he said to me, why do you believe in God? And then I woke up. Now, I was probably 8, 9, 10, somewhere in there. And needless to say, I could not get to my mother's room fast enough from that point. As a matter of fact, I did a flying leap from my bed into the hallway, did not touch the ground, and ran as fast as I could. And I didn't really think much about that at the time. It just freaked me out. That's all I knew. And then a few years later, I have something happen very similar, not the exact same details, but it was the same thing. Something happened, and I have this dream that says, why do you believe in God? And then I wake up. And it wasn't until years later that I was praying and studying and things like that that the Lord showed me that here was the enemy coming against me, trying to get me to no longer believe in God, to, to fear, to do these things and whatnot because obviously there was a call in my life and that God wanted me to do something. But that was, you know, it's, it's just interesting. But this is the image that I had. Now, could that have simply been a, just a fanciful dream? Of course it could have been. You know, kids have weird dreams. My mother had a dream one time. She was uh, chasing an ostrich. Explain that one. I don't know. You know, she rode a unicorn and chased an ostrich. I don't, I don't get it. We have weird dreams all the time. But not every dream is, is prophetic, and not every dream is just because we ate pizza too late in the evening. You know, things like that. But here's the deal. We have these images in our head of what he looks like, what he does, and all of that. 
kind of stuff. And truthfully, if you want to flip that, put that picture back up there, Amy, if you really wanted to get to reality, is that you would take the angel and make him this big, forceful creature and take the enemy and make him the small, tiny one because he's been defeated. He has no power and authority in our life. Now, am I saying that Lucifer has four faces and eyes everywhere and all of that? I don't know. What I do know is that the only power that he has because of what Jesus did is the power that we give him. We see in Genesis 3, and we talked about this, what a cherubim does, 3 and verse 24. It says, he drove, him, drove out the man. This is right after the fall of man. He drove out the man, and he placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden, and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. If you remember back to the Holy Spirit series we did a couple months ago, I told you whenever you put an I am on a Hebrew word, it gives a plural. One thing I didn't point out, and I probably should have, is that when we think of plural in America, in English, we put an apostrophe S or something like that. But there it's I am. But when they're plural, no longer, it doesn't refer to two. It refers to a minimum of three. And we see that in Elohim used in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the It refers to three. Here we see it again. I am cherubim. So it's showing us that there was at least three creatures. My question for you is this. If Adam was the one they were trying to keep out of Eden and keep from the tree of life, would they need three? creatures and a flaming sword to do that? Absolutely not. Who were they keeping out? They're keeping out Satan. Keeping him from the perfection that God had created. So here we have the reality of, of what we see. What Satan looks like and what not. Now why does that matter? Truth is it doesn't. It really doesn't matter. But our goal as Christ followers should be always to be biblically literate, to know the word. I heard a story um, just the other day. There's a guy named Blake Curry, or Curry Blake, that's his name. He's, he's part of John G. Lake Ministries. They travel all over, they, they minister healing, and, and they've got an incredible thing. But he was telling a story one time, and uh, he was just getting into ministry, and he shows up to one of these conferences that had every name that could be named, um, Lester Summerall was there, and he was the big one. And then, you know, R.W. Shambach and all these other guys and stuff. And so he said, I felt like I kind of needed to sneak in because I was a nobody at this thing, you know, this big round table. And he'd, he told his wife that he said he's going because he said, I, there's two questions I need to know. He said, I need to know what the will of God is in my life and how we know it. And he said, and secondly, he's like, how do we be led by the Spirit? which is a question that all of us has faced at one time or another in our life. There's been hundreds of books written on this subject, and, and, and because we're good Christians, we overcomplicate the process. But anyway, so Lester Summerall was there, and um, I don't remember exactly what had happened, but there at the conference, somebody stands up and said, hey, I have a question. He asked the question, and Lester said, how soon can you get to South Bend, Indiana, which is where he's from? He said, I can get there as soon as you need me to. He's like, good, meet me in my office wherever they were. So he hops on a bus, he goes up there, and he says, I've got these two questions. He's like, I don't know how to answer these. So he gets there and, and to Summerall's office and his secretary is there. He said, you know, I'm here to see uh, Brother Summerall. And he said, oh, do you have an appointment? He's like, no, but he's expecting me. She's like, oh, okay, go on in. So she walks in. He's got these two questions rolling through his head. He walks in there. Lester's writing, doing whatever he does, and sitting there. Doesn't even look up at him. When he comes in, he stands there for a second and said it felt like forever, but it was probably 30 seconds of complete awkwardness. He was probably finishing his sins. And Lester looks up at him and he says, To know the will of God, you need to know the Word of God. And to be led by the Spirit, you need to do the Word of God. And goes back to his writing. And he said, that's it? 
that's, that's all there is? He's like, are you sure that's it? There's nothing more? He's like, he repeats himself. He's like, don't overcomplicate it. And this is the problem. And this is why we do this. This is why we spend so much time going through things that maybe don't seem significant. And maybe it's like, why do we keep talking about this stuff? We don't know our word. We know the parts we like. We know the parts that greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. And that's very true. But we don't know the parts that talk about things like this. Because we have the same mentality, the same mindset that the rest of the world does. That we've got our image of God from movies, from books. From all these different things that are out there. Same with the enemy. You know, the best thing about the enemy is he's defeated. I mean, that's the best part. We don't have to worry about him. He goes around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. May. That gives the implication that there are some that he may not. And the ones that he may not are the ones that know the word and do the word. Those are the keys. Some of us know the word. Some of us know it real well. But we don't do it. We don't do the things that it tells us to do. We don't stand upon the Word of God. We see Jesus talking about a man who built his house on a rock and a man who built his house on a sand. And you can always tell where somebody's out in life when the storms come. Because what happens? They either crumble or they stand. It's one of the two. It's never in between. It's never just, you know, oh, a tree blew over, but that's all right. I can get a new tree. It's always one of the two. Why? The because we've got to build a foundation upon the Word of God. That is the rock of which we stand. That is what we talk about all the time. We build everything upon the Word of God. We have to. We must. We must know it, and we must do it. I've seen for years, and I was in this camp for a while too. One of the reasons I, I, I'm, I read all the time, I'm studying constantly, um, you know, the, the problem is, is I try to always be a week or two ahead from what you're getting on Sunday. And so this one is no different. Is I'm more excited about next week than I am this week. I can't get to next week fast enough because this week I'd already studied out. Now, last week I was excited about this week. And last week it's like, oh, yeah, let's just get going. You know, this is just the way I am. But when we study, when we, we give into the Word of God, we allow it to change our lives. We don't, and the problem is we don't know it. We think we know it. We have concepts from it we pull from, but we don't know it. And so we have to submit our lives to Him. And by doing that, we become doers of the Word. And to be a doer of the Word, if you guys remember what we talked about when it comes to worship, it's the coming and going. When we come together, we worship God together. We're recharged, we're rebuilt. We come together as assembly, as iron sharpens iron. We're here for all of those reasons. The problem is the going. The spiritual warfare does not happen in this church, right? Satan has no place here. The spiritual warfare happens when we go to war. The problem is, is we do a lot of coming, but we don't do any going. We're not out there actively engaging the enemy. We're passively engaging it. More often than not, we accidentally stumble our way into an opportunity to share Christ with somebody instead of actively engaging it. I'll tell you one quick story. I had somebody I met with this week, I think it was Friday, and um, they were coming to town, and so I have all this planned out. And, and remember, we're always led by the Spirit. Never forget that, okay? So your plans could very well just be your plans. Keep that in mind. And so um, I knew they were coming. This is an engaged couple that are living together. They both need Christ desperately. One of them had asked me recently about the mark of the beast, you know, things like that. And so I was like, oh, there's my opportunity. So we go eat lunch. I bring my Bible and all that. And I am ready to hammer them with scriptures. And in the course of the conversation, 
I'm sitting there and I, 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 man, I was ready. I was so ready. And the Lord says, wait. And I'm like, you wait. I'm doing it now. And, and he said, wait. And I'm like, man, you've got to be kidding me. And so I sat there, and so I answered their question about the mark of the beast and things like that. And I made one very clear point. I said, the mark of the beast cannot be upon the church because the church has already been removed at this point. And I said, but the church doesn't mean that you go to church. The church is those who have given their lives to Christ, repented for their sin, and received salvation from him. And that's all I said. And I stopped. And what I just recently found out is they had... This one guy has not been in church in probably 15 years. Um, they're looking for a place to get married, and he called his old church. And his old church said, oh, we still consider you a member here. And so you, you're welcome to come back, and you can use our facility. And that's where it dawned on me was that in their mind, the church is what they're doing. They're part of a church. They're not a part of the church. And again, that's the leading of the Holy Spirit because Chris's plan was to go in there and Bible thump them for a while. They needed that. They still need it. But yeah, I, all they did was just plant that little seed. It's the coming and the going. We've got to be intentional about it. So when it comes down to what the enemy looks like, who cares what he looks like? Who cares what his real name is? I don't care. All I care is that he's out there ravishing the world and we are to take the authority that God has given us, is what you heard this morning, and stand on it and do it. That's what matters. Amen? Let's pray.